Father God, we are so thankful for all that we've experienced here today already in the Lord's house. Thank you, God, for Jesus that makes it all possible. Thank you, Lord, for our King. Today I pray that as we wrap up this series on King David, that, Lord, you'll teach us today, and that as we learn these final lessons from his life, I pray, Father, that we'd apply them, uh, that, Lord, we'd look at our own lives, examine them in light of these things, and, Lord, make whatever changes might be necessary. I pray, Father, if there is any who don't know you as Savior, that somewhere in, uh, in the songs that have been sung, in the, in the activities that have already taken place, Lord, here in this message, somewhere they'd understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit would get hold of their heart. And this day, they'd come to know King Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I pray for your filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit today. I pray for forgiveness for anything that might hinder my usefulness. I pray you'd help me to be accurate and clear, practical in, in my presentation today. And I pray, Father, you'd protect me from saying anything I ought not and give me boldness to say things I ought. Now just speak to us today. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now finally to the final chapter in our series of studies on lessons from the life of David. There's a lot of things that we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about quite a few different things, and especially we've skipped quite a ways ahead from the last time we met until now. And so I encourage you to do a little reading on your own, and there's some good things there. But I think we've hit the high points, and that was what our goal was in starting out this series. This was not meant to be an in-depth study into every single moment of his life but rather to be a, an overview where we might learn some practical lessons. And I think we've done that. So we come to the end. How do you sum up a life? And, and, and even more so, perhaps, how do you sum up a life as monumental as that of this warrior, poet, king, David? I found myself thinking about that question a lot this week, and as I thought about that question, it, it kind of morphed into another question in my mind that I found myself asking, and that, that was this. What was it that made David so special in God's eyes? For no doubt, he was special in God's eyes. There's no doubt God saw something in David. God's blessing on David's life was very real, very apparent, and it didn't even end with his death. The Bible is clear that God continued to bless David's offspring and the people of Israel and even you and I, the entire world, the Bible says, for David's sake. It's an amazing thing. Solomon, we read, is now on the throne. And Solomon is now the king. Solomon started off great. But Solomon didn't end quite as well. And there came a day when God said to Solomon, you know, I'm going to yank the kingdom away from you. But you know what he said to him? He said it like this. He said, uh, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. For the sake of your father David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. For David's sake. Another place he said, The Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. For David's sake. Years later, Hezekiah would be on the throne. We've mentioned Hezekiah. He's a, he was a great king. There came a time in Hezekiah's life when he got sick. The prophet came to him and said, uh, put your house in order because you're going to die and not live. The Bible says Hezekiah wept sore. He turned his face to the wall and he prayed. And God sent the prophet back to him and said, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. 15 more years. 
But notice what he said here. He said, I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, for David's sake. When the prophet Isaiah would, would sometime later prophesy about the king of Assyria's attempts to invade Jerusalem, listen to what he said. He said, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's. Don't you think that's amazing? I find it astonishing that he was so special in the mind of God that his influence lasted so far beyond. We cannot look back over these weeks of study, and I think this is the 18th session that we've had in the life of David. We can't look back over all these things without seeing the fact that there was something special about this man, David. God saw something in David that elicited his blessing, a blessing that reached beyond his life to his offspring and all the way down to us. What made David so special in God's eyes? Well, I think there's a phrase in, in the passage that was read, and our, our key verse is verse number 3 in chapter 29. I think there's a phrase there that helps us and, and maybe, maybe gives us a clue. First Chronicles 29, verse 3, Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold. And silver. Think about that little phrase, I have set my affection on the house of my God. You know, David was indeed a warrior, and we've had some fun thinking about some of the things that he did. He fought God's battles. He was a mighty, mighty individual. He fought to unite the tribes of Israel into a single kingdom. He fought to take over the city of Jerusalem that had never been conquered. He was a warrior. But you know, David's victories were not why God promised to bless his offspring for his sake. David was a poet and a musician. His music has lasted for thousands of years and blessed the hearts of all of us, untold millions. But David's prowess with the written word or his dexterity with the harp, those weren't the reasons God promised to bless for his sake. He was a king. He was the greatest, without question, of Israel's kings. And most people would say he was the greatest king to be on the earth at the time in which he lived. Tremendous ruler among men. But his success on the throne was not the reason why God said he would bless for David's sake. No, I think God promised blessings on others for the sake of David because of what we see in that verse we just read there, where he said, I have set my affection on the house of my God. Now, I know that right there he's talking specifically about the temple and we skipped a whole long passage of scripture where it talks about David's preparations for the temple. God had told him he couldn't build it, Solomon would build it, and he continued to make preparations. It's wonderful to read, and I encourage you to do so. And when he's talking right here about, I have set my affections on the house of my God, he is specifically talking about that, wanting to see the temple completed. But I think we can look at that in a more generic way, and I really don't think we're doing any damage to the scripture to do so. I think we could read it, and it would be accurate to say, I have set my affection on the things of God. Or maybe even more generically, I have set my affection on God. Because you see, that describes David. That is David. 
We see the same thought in a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul many, many years later in Antioch of Pisidia. Paul said when he had removed, when God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus, a man after my own heart. I think we have to accept the fact that the reason God blessed David was entirely because of David's heart, because of what he was in his heart, because he could say and and mean it, I have set my affection on the house of my God. I have set my affection on the things of God because God could look at him and see that he was a man after his own heart. And so it was his heart. And so what can we learn this morning about David's heart? What can we say about it? Well, just a few simple things. I would say this morning, first of all, that David's heart for God showed in his dependence on God. Has there ever been anybody who was more dependent on God, who more recognized their dependence on God and lived that way? His dependence is seen throughout the many psalms he wrote and sang. He wrote them for and sang them to God. Psalms 61, the first few verses, is a wonderful example. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. David's heart for God showed in his dependence on God. That dependence on God is seen clearly in the early days of his life. I suppose maybe some of us might think it's shown best in the early days of his life when he burst on the scene. And probably most clearly we, we can at least find real examples of it, concrete examples of it uh, in his wonderful battle with Goliath. Might have been his greatest moment. I don't know. Do you remember what David said to Saul when Saul laughed at him and Saul said, are you nuts? You're just a kid. You can't go up against that giant. Are you crazy? David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Dependent on God. And do you remember what I think might be David's greatest words that he ever spoke? Some people would say that the greatest words David ever spoke were Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the one that everybody remembers, everybody quotes. You hear it at weddings, you hear it at funerals, you hear it all the time. When somebody talks about what did David write, Psalm 23 is going to come to everybody's mind. But you know what I think his greatest words are? I've quoted them several times in here. I think the words he said to Goliath were the greatest words he ever spoke. I think David reached heights right here that I don't think he ever reached again. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David had a heart that was dependent upon God. That dependence was seen over and over as we watched him running through the wilderness, struggling over and over against his enemy Saul. 
Time and time again, he could have taken matters into his own hands. And time and time again, he said, I'm going to trust God. Time and time again, I'm going to let the, the Lord fight this battle. So David's heart for God was shown in his dependence on God. I think another thing, I think David's heart for God was shown in his obedience to God. His obedience. David did trust God, and he was dependent on God. But David also obeyed and served God. Perfectly? Of course not. Of course not. We've certainly spent ample time, have we not, to have seen examples of David's feet of clay. He was a man like other men, and he failed like other men. Sin was just as much a reality in his life as it is in mine, and as it is in yours. But in the midst of those failures, in spite of all, we still see a heart that longed to serve and obey God. You remember when, when he was brokenhearted, over the broken relationship with God that resulted from his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. You remember the words he said? You remember Psalm 51 when he poured out his heart to God? He said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted to you. For you don't desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David's heart for obedience was seen in his repentance over the matter of the senses. We just talked about that this last week. So the Bible says, Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aran of the Jebusite. And so David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. David had a heart that wanted to obey. When he found out that he was, that was broken, his relationship with God was broken, his obedience with God was marred. It broke his heart. David's obedience of God sprang from his heart. It was something he desired to do. It was something he actively sought to do. There's a phrase in one of his psalms which I think explains it very, very well. Psalm chapter 40 and verse number 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Yes, David's heart for God showed in his obedience to God. But number three, David's heart for God was unmovable. His heart was fixed. In our key verse this morning, David said, I have set my affection on the house of my God. Verse number three. New American Standard Bible renders that phrase as my delight in the house of my God. The NIV renders it my devotion to the temple of my God. That affection and that delight and that devotion, not only to the temple of God, which David truly loved, but to God himself, just simply never waned in David's life. And though I cannot be absolutely adamant about this, I think there's enough evidence in the Bible to say that it actually increased as he went through his life. I mentioned that we didn't read verses, or chapters 22 on through 29, but I encourage you to do so. When you think about the amazing energy level that David showed in getting ready for the temple, piling up provision after provision, uh, getting people ready and in positions to handle it, 
he, uh, Sean, planned, staffed, and coordinated and controlled, as well as anybody you will ever want to see. Read about it. The fact is, I think that even though the Bible says David in 1 Kings 1.1 was old and advanced in years at this point, I think he was just running full speed to the finish line. He did not stop. He had set his affection on the things of God. His heart for God was unmovable. It was fixed for God. He was not slowing down. As a matter of fact, I think he was speeding up. You know, Paul described something like this in Philippians, did he not? Philippians, I, I can't remember if we read this this morning in Sunday school or not. We might have. But the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian church, he said, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I, have, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Running, pressing on, pressing toward the goal. You know what those are? Those are all images of a runner running a race and approaching the finish line and with every ounce of strength left in him, pressing toward that line. You see people running in foot races in the Olympics and you see them as they approach the ribbon, they stretch their chest out trying to be the very first one to cross that line. That's what Paul was describing. And I think that was David's heart, an unmovable heart, a heart fixed on God, a heart that was set on the affection of God, the things of God. And I don't think he slowed down, even when he was old and advanced in years. In 1973, one of the greatest sporting events in the history of the world took place. Anybody remember what happened in 1973 that was so great? In 1973, Secretariat won the Belmont Stakes and claimed the Triple Crown. If you want to watch something that will inspire you and fire you up, you need to go home today after this, after this service and you need to go on YouTube and you need to look up the 1973 Belmont Stakes and you need to watch that race again. Because it was truly amazing. Watch as Secretariat set a world record time, two minutes and 24 seconds on a mile and a half, never been touched. Watch as Secretariat beat his nearest defender by 31 lengths, a, a margin of victory that has never been touched. It's truly an amazing race. He's an amazing horse. Those facts about Secretariat and the 1973 Belmont Stakes are usually known. I mean, anybody who knows anything about horse racing and that sort of thing would probably recognize those. But you know, there's some other things that are a little bit more obscure that maybe you haven't heard. For example, I don't know if you've heard the fact that as Secretariat ran in that race, he did something that other horses just simply do not do. He accelerated from the beginning to the end. He exited the gate, unlike his normal way of laying back and running slow at the beginning and then catching up. This time he took off right at the lead exited the gate at full speed, but then he just continued 
to grow faster and faster as he ran. Unlike in normal horse racing, Secretary at every quarter mile clocked a faster time than the quarter mile before him. That's amazing. It just doesn't happen. He didn't save any for a final kick. He didn't pace himself. He just flat out ran and ran and ran, and the, 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 the official records say that when he crossed the finish line, he was still accelerating. Another thing that perhaps you don't know, you might have heard this, I don't know, but when the Secretariat died, one of the reasons for his tremendous success became clear, because an autopsy was performed on Secretariat, and it was found that Secretariat had a heart larger than a normal horse. And I'm going to quote something here. At the time of Secretariat's death, the veterinarian who performed the necropsy, Dr. Thomas Schwartzek, head pathologist at the University of Kentucky, stated, we just stood there in stunned silence. We couldn't believe it. The heart was perfect. There were no problems with it. It was just this huge engine. He estimated Secretariat's heart probably weighed 22 pounds, or about two and three-quarter times as large as that of the average horse. It's all about the heart. David said, I have set my affection on the house of my God. Paul said, God raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So how do you sum up a man's life? And more to the point, how do you sum up a man like David, a warrior and a poet and a king? In David's case, I think it all had to do with his heart, his heart for God, totally dedicated to God, and that's what made him special. And so I ask you this morning, well, I ask me first, is that true of me? Do I have a heart for God? And is it true of you? Have you set your affections on the things of God? In 1741, Jonathan Edwards wrote an article it was entitled, The Distinguishing Marks of a True Work of the Spirit of God. And in that article, he was discussing traits that we might examine to determine whether or not our conversion was real, whether or not we really were believers. I came across this article this week in another article, which was talking about how parents can examine their children's profession of faith. You know, a lot of times our children will give a profession of faith when they're very young four or five years old, Sunday school, they'll say, yes, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. And then years later, you look at them, and they're not any different than anybody else. And maybe, they, maybe their profession, they didn't understand. And so this particular article I was reading was about how you can examine that and try to determine whether or not it was real and help them to make a real profession, if not. But it was based on Edward's five distinguishing marks. And, and as I read that, as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? We don't need to just apply that to, to our children. We need to apply that to ourselves. I need to apply that to me. And I think not only does it help us to answer the question of, am I a Christian in the first place? But I think it helps us to answer the question of, do I have a heart for God? Is my heart, is, have I set my affections on the things of God? And so here's Edward's five distinguishing marks, and I'll just mention these and be done. Edward said, number one, you love Jesus. You love Jesus. In other words, you have a raised esteem for Jesus Christ. He said when the Spirit moves in a person's heart and awakens them to faith and repentance, their view of Jesus changes. The nominal believer respects Jesus, but does not reverence or exalt him. 
The true Christian takes delight in Jesus, a delight that is often palpable and contagious, as was discussed this morning in Sunday school. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? The second is, you, do you, you hate sin. You hate sin. Edward said one of the clear signs of a work of God is increased hatred for sin. Our eyes are suddenly open to see the dreadfulness of one's condition. Where before one had spotted weaknesses and flaws, but always had excuses that they're ready to cover up those personal blemishes, now the Spirit shows the sinner just how degraded and evil he is. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? Number three, he says you love God's Word. You love God's Word. He wasn't talking here about simple literary appreciation for the contents of this great book, but rather, as he said, to a spirit-given hunger and thirst for the Word of God. Many people respect the Bible. Many people call it a sacred book and think of it as a holy, a holy text, but few people view it as the actual Word of God. The actual Word of God, which, as Edward said, has, as, uh, God himself has appointed and inspired to deliver to his church its rule of faith and practice. It's the great and standing rule for the direction of his church. Where a person's heart flames with love and holy regard for the scriptures, the Spirit has worked. Do you love the Bible? Number four, he said, do you love truth? Truth. Edwards wrote that an awareness and responsiveness to divine truth was a clear signal the Lord had moved in human hearts. So where people came to see that there is a God, that's truth. That he is great, that's truth. That he hates sin, that's truth. That they themselves have immortal souls and must give account of themselves to God. All those things are truth. He said where that is true, the Spirit was working true conversion. Do you love truth? Truth, and finally, number five, you love believers. Believers. And the fact is, I think a lot of people who might say yea to all of the previous four might struggle here a little bit. The fact is, they may well appreciate fellow church members and contribute in some way to their well-being. But they've not been filled by the Lord with a holy love for fellow Christians, Edward said. And thus, they don't serve them. True conversion will cause stable couples to take in young Christians hungry for discipleship. It will lead Christians to give generously to missionaries and fellow believers. It will drive older believers to spend time mentoring younger ones, as described in Titus chapter 2. In the end, he says, the way one cares for one's fellow members says more about our testimony of conversion than we might initially think. True Christians serve their fellow members out of love as a response to the grace of Jesus. Do you love other believers? Do you love other believers? So I challenge you to consider those three questions this morning. Those five questions, I'm sorry. Do you love Jesus? Do you hate sin? Do you love the Bible and truth? And do you love other believers? Because you see, if you can't answer a firm affirmative to any of those, it's an indication, is it not, that there's something wrong with your heart? And the only fix for that is found at the foot of the cross. You need to talk to Jesus about it. And you need to do it today. So how is your heart? Can you say, like King David, that you have set your affections on God? 
Do you have a heart for God? As David.